I can't get the memory of the taste of the beignets out of my mind. Oh my god, I know. It's... I just want to learn how to make them myself, but then I also don't because I would gain 35,000 pounds. I have a box of beignet mix, like the Café du Monde beignet mix, in my pantry, oh. and I just know they won't be as good, though. It's like I already, it's true. I, I already know I'm not going to be successful in this endeavor. It's true. Their secret I, ingredient is crack, so. And I'm fresh out, fresh Damn. out of crack. I know. Damn. But speaking of, apparently, like literally the week before we went to New Orleans, a new beignet place opened up in Dallas from someone from New Orleans. Oh. Like it literally just opened a couple of weeks ago. Um, Yeah, so we need to go. Yes. Okay, so next time I'm in Dallas, we're going to get beignets, you know, the famous Dallas donut. (laughs) Famous Dallas Donut. (laughs) Um, Well, hello, everyone. Hello, hello. This is Blood and Wine. My name's Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And And we just got back from NOLA. Yeah, we're fresh off of our vacation from New Orleans. And literally, I want to go back. I, I didn't know how I would feel about this city, but I love how European it is and how much history and how it's still the south it's like this combination Mm -hmm. of all these amazing things oh yeah i mean i i think as far as historical u.s cities go outside of like some of the main east coast cities like new orleans is at least when it comes to uh historical from like european settlers i mean you can trace civilization in I think Santa Fe, New Mexico was is like a thousand years old or something like that. It's super old. Yeah, yeah, Santa Fe is really old. But I feel like, especially in the French Quarter ofs, you can really mm. see the influence. You can see this inspiration. Oh, absolutely. And I made I made a realization. Okay, so I think my problem with a, the way a lot of houses are built here in Texas and like in Oklahoma where we grew up is the garages in the front. I think I prefer homes where the garage is in the back, like with an alley. That way the front has this beautiful facade and there's not like a garage door there. Yeah, garage doors are ugly. They're ugly. And like garages are great and all, but like let's have an alley and put them behind the house. <laughs> let's hide what we don't want to see. I mean, Hide the ugly and put up a facade. It's perfect. It's how it's, I live my life. It's, it, it, we all do it in some <laughs> way, shape or form. Um, but yeah, seriously, if you guys haven't been to New Orleans, you should absolutely go, especially if you're interested in true crime, ghosts, the paranormal, vampires, voodoo, they have it all and then some. Yeah. We did a really fantastic, uh, tour that actually covered all of those things. Oh yeah. The tour was incredible. And at first I was a bit skeptical that it was going to be very like ghosts and supernatural. And I'm going to be like, okay, like whatever but it really dove into the true crime the historical there was supernatural pieces because new orleans is a very supernatural city totally Um, but it was amazing yes and well i'm actually just gonna jump right in and like go forward more and talk about our topic because obviously we're already there um Mm -hmm. so this week's episode is gonna be about nola the murders, the history. We've each picked cases from um, that were either we heard about on our trip or were influenced or just like very typical NOLA cases. So I'm really excited about this one. 
if you guys remember, um, back before the last episode, so our last episode was Jonestown, and we did that combo, you know, one big case. Mm-hmm. Um, I had actually, like, lost the previous one, so this is my topic of choice that I'm picking for episode 78. It's NOLA. Everything NOLA. New Orleans. I mean, yes, New Orleans is incredible. If you have the opportunity, you have to go, and it is Definitely one that is chock full of true crime-ness. Yeah, seriously, all the things. Um, But, so I guess we'll now, like, back up a little bit. And um, Tyler, why don't you tell our listeners about Patreon? I don't think they've heard of it. Patreon, you say? What could that be? (laughs) Patreon. (laughs) So uh, if y'all haven't heard, Patreon is um, a page where it's kind of a fan community type feel. And it is where listeners can come, subscribe, and uh, become members. You get awesome perks like our Murder Mini episodes, as well as our Bottle Talk episodes. We have different levels of perks, so ranging from shoutouts on social media and in the episode, all the way to directing your own episode. Yes, so... But in addition, don't forget to subscribe to us. If you have already, thank you so much. You're getting those episodes immediately when they come out. Um, But if you haven't, hop on over to Apple Podcasts, hit the subscribe button. You'll get all of our episodes on Tuesdays, plus any special announcements, which we haven't done in a while. But you know what? Sometimes they happen. Um, But be sure and do that. Thanks. Yes. Um, also totally, totally unrelated side note, there are some major thunderstorms that are supposed to sweep through Dallas tonight. Oh, yes. Uh, the same storms are actually about to sweep through Austin here in the next hour or so. So basically, if you hear a thunderstorm in the background, it's not sound we've added in. It's real. It's real thunderstorms Mm -hmm. just to add to the creepiness. And to be completely honest, if this were to happen in any episode while we're recording, this one's perfect for Nola. Like, just, I don't know what it is about the eeriness of a thunderstorm and the stories we're going to be talking about, but it's pretty fitting, so... It is, and it's it's just going to add to the spooky. I will say, I don't think thunderstorms are always that eerie, but in a true crime setting, yes. Because I'm one of those people who will uh, get on Spotify and like to fall asleep and be like, sounds of rain? Nah. Sounds of severe weather? Yes, sir. Oh my god, that's so weird. Um, but... If uh, there's a big crack of thunder and I scream while you're in the middle of your middle of your case, uh, you know that it's working. Yeah. <laughs> I guess, I mean, if your goal is to scare me. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, okay. But anyway, before we get into our cases, let's get into our wine, okay? Because... Absolutely. I'm really excited about the one I picked. I'm really excited about this one that I picked. It is uh, definitely outside of my comfort zone, outside of my knowledge zone. Ooh, okay, I'm really interested, but I get to go first this time. Yes. Okay, so with NOLA being our theme, obviously I was drawn heavily to this bottle. Oh my gosh, (laughs) yes. This is the Dearly Beloved Ivy Red. And the reason I said it's really fitting is because the front of it is like this skull made out of flowers, like very Dia de los Muertos um, influenced. Yeah, which is perfect because for listeners listening to this episode, uh, sorry, I just saw lightning. Um, It's starting. Uh, Dia de los Muertos was just a few days ago. Yes. Also perfectly fitting. 
It is. And I'm not 100% sure what vintage this is. There's not a year on the bottle that I could find at least, but I'm guessing it's the 2018. Um, so this is actually a wine that Dearly Beloved makes yearly. And if you look on Vivino, which if you've never looked at that, it's a fantastic resource for wines, but they have vintage vintages. They have vintages that date back to 2005. So like that's 14 years of this wine being made. But yeah, so let me tell you a little bit about it. It's $8 at Trader Joe's. So definitely in my price range. Um, And obviously my inspiration, like I was saying, was our recent trip to New Orleans. And it's a red blend of a lot of different grapes. So it has Zinfandel, Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Syrah, Cabernet Franc, and Petite Syrah. Um, Oh, wow. So all of that combined together in this red blend creates for a very dark ruby color, and it's 15% ABV. Oh, so that's a strong one. Yeah, so this one's up there. This is a, you probably should eat some food with it. Um, But we won't. (laughs) I mean, I already had dinner. I guess you won't. Oh, okay, fair. I did already eat dinner. It has a very fruity nose with notes of blackberry, cherries, and vanilla, and it's a medium-bodied wine. So even though it does have a lot of reds in it, they do mellow out and balance to a medium body with soft, light tannins. So it's also got a very light to medium acidity. So I think this fruit is really going to come to the forefront. This is going to be a fruitier blend, which... For me, most red blends, in my opinion, are pretty fruit forward. Yeah. Typically, you don't think of reds, though, being super soft and fruity. But this is one, because of how these grapes blend together, be like very medium and light, it's a really perfect red wine for summertime. Um, And then you can just carry it on into the fall. So it fits when it's hot outside or as it starts to kind of cool down. Mm. Also, it pairs really well with meat, such as beef, lamb, and chicken. And basically, like, you can drink this wine with anything. It, I mean, that's how we do it, though. It's like, whatever you want to drink it with, drink it with. Absolutely. Whether that be popcorn, Cheetos, a bacon cheeseburger. <laughs> Everything goes well with a bacon cheeseburger. Or a steak. Totally mm. going to go well. Um, but also at the very top of it, there's another skull, like, on the top of where the bottle cap the cork Uh, that's the word yeah all right well i'm gonna get into this wine yes well uh as you get into that uh going back just a little bit to talking about how any wine goes with any food if you like it it's so true in when we were in new orleans i had obviously a ton of seafood because we're on the gulf and for the most part i was like i'm gonna drink cabs it's what i like would it have technically paired best with, like, white wines? Probably, but I wanted a deep cab, and it was perfect. We drank a lot of cab. We did. But the wine that I will be drinking today is not a cab. I am not actually sure what it is, because, side note, I'm going to butcher uh, the name of this, because I don't read Turkish. Ooh, Okay, I was actually watching an episode of Fraser yesterday, and they were talking all about Turkish wine. So, okay, super random sidebar. I'm just now watching Fraser for the first time, and I don't know where it's been my whole life. Like, I, it's fantastic. Maybe you just had to be older. I don't know. But 
Fraser is a wine snob. Maybe it's part of why I relate. I don't know. Um, but anyway, one episode is talking all about this Turkish wine, and this was just yesterday, so I was curious about it. So I'm interested in hearing about what you have to say. Well, I have never seen Fraser. Well, it's very funny. I'm happy for him. The wine I'm drinking today is the 2015 Kavaklider Yakut Akugazu Bagazkere from Turkey. That's a mouthful. I don't know what it any is. of those words mean. Me neither. Apologies uh, for our Turkish listeners for the pronunciation. Um, so Kavaklider is Turkey's first and oldest private sector wine producer, and it was established in Ankara, which is the capital of Turkey, in 1929, which I'm pretty sure was either just before or just after uh, the fall of the Ottoman Empire. Yeah, I think you're right. So I can't remember if the Ottoman Empire, I think it ended uh, right after or because of World War One, but don't quote me on that. So this wine is almost as old as the country of Turkey itself, Whoa, which is crazy. That is crazy. This company owns over 1,500 acres of vineyards in the famed Antolia region, which maybe it's just me. I have heard of the Anatolia and all of that. Did not realize that was Turkey. I don't even know if I would have known or if I ever knew. So we'll say I did it, uh, I guess. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. Um, so the Anatolia region is where professional wine growers grow a lot of wines, and they strive to maintain the compliancy with the indigenous soil climate grape species. So it's a lot of grapes that are native to the region. You're not going to find a whole lot of ones that, you know, a Cabernet Sauvignon, for example, that grew up in France. You're not going to find a lot of those in this region. That grew up in France. <laughs> yeah, studied abroad. It was whatever. <laughs> yeah. Cabernet Sauvignon grew up in Paris. Um, it had a country home in the Bordeaux region with Papa Frank and Mama Blanc. God, that, uh, what a life. What a life, though, right? Mm, fucking rich people. And they travel rich, all over rich the world. Grapes. Rich grapes. Traveling all over the world. Getting established and all over the freaking place. Becoming, like, king of all the places, too. It's kind of, you know, it is what it is. Not fair. So this wine is a red blend, and unfortunately I could not figure out what it was blended with. So may have been grapes you didn't know existed. I mean, yeah. It, honestly, it could be like, oh, uh, it's a blend of the Yakut, the Akuzgazu, and the Bagaskere. I don't know if those are grapes or not. Did I say where mine was from? It's from Central Coast, California. Oh, I, I don't think you did. I don't think I did. I think I was just so enthralled by the bottle and like talking about the skull and how much I'm obsessed with this bottle that um, I forgot to tell you that mine's a California wine. Central Coast, not Turkish. This is not a Turkish wine. Yours yeah, is. Mine is. And this wine is described as having a very bright, intense fuchsia color, intense aromas of red fruits, damson plum, sour cherry, and violets. Sounds good. I know. It's very intense and persistent fruit flavors on the palate. It's very full-bodied with a well-balanced, soft tannins, and it apparently perfectly matches with red meat dishes, pizza a la turca, cold meat dishes, deli meat, 
lasagna with bolognese and pastas. And uh, I read in a couple reviews of people who had it like at Turkish restaurants with like lamb and meats like that and said it was perfect. So I'm so ready. I would expect it to be perfect. I expect perfection and nothing less. <laughs> I am a suburban mother. What does the bottle look like? You have yet it's to show very, me. Sorry, oh. It's a very simple bottle. Oh, yeah. Um, I can see why you had no idea how to say that. I don't, I don't even. Yeah. yeah. And it is just described on the bottle as a dry red wine. Well, I mean, honestly, knowing it's dry is important. True. But yeah, I am excited. I got this one at... Oh, I'm blinking. What's the, the wine store in Austin? Total Wine. Total Wine. That's the word. That's where I got it from. It's one of my favorite places. Can't remember the name. Not just in Austin, but there you go. Well, that's true. It's everywhere. But um, got this there, and it was, I think, in the like 7 or $8 range. And I specifically was walking around looking at all the interesting wines and found the Middle East section. And I was like, ooh, I don't think I've ever had a wine from the Middle East. I'm not sure if Turkey counts. I think it does. Not positive. Fun fact about Turkey, though, is it, like Russia, spans two continents. Because Istanbul is actually across, like, sits on either side of a river, essentially. And on the west side is Europe. On the east side is Asia. So the city kind of connects the continents. There's a part of Russia that's in Europe? Well, like Moscow and St. Petersburg and all of that. Everything in Russia west of the Ural Mountains, I think, counts as Europe. Oh. And everything on the east of the Urals, like Siberia and the Kamchatka, is Asia. I thought the whole country was in Asia. I mean, borders aren't real, so... I think that's why it's super confusing, because it's, like, just this arbitrary, like, oh, well, this side's this continent, and that one's that side. Well, it's interesting to think about how a river changes a border. Well, no, Mm -hmm. let me back up. The river doesn't change the border. It changes what the original border was. So it's, like, once the river starts to move and change and whatever, then Mm -hmm. you get, like, random pieces of land that are owned by either state because like that borderline the latitude longitude stays the same but the river changes what that you know original line was Mm -hmm. like you can't see it anymore so makes me wonder Uh, what like the sorry between like oklahoma and texas like how much that's changed oh i'm sure it's changed a lot there are um i find borders and countries really fascinating and there are a couple youtube videos that go into like enclaves and exclaves which are pieces of a country in another country like because of border disputes because of just weird shit that happens that it's like a chunk of belgium completely surrounded by the netherlands and there's also like enclaves within exclaves within enclaves so it's like a piece of belgium inside of the netherlands which is inside of a piece of belgium which is all of that inside of the netherlands it's weird that is too much it agreed (laughs) all right well um have you gotten into your bottle yet Come on, dude. Let's open up the bottle. My wine opener's very noisy, and this is a cork. (laughs) Yes. What does it smell like? I'm going to pour a glass first, because it kind of smells like a cab. Really? Mine definitely smells like uh, chocolate and fruit. I definitely get the fruit and the plum. Yeah, I get a bit of the floral. I guess that's the violet. I don't think I've ever smelled a violet before, so... I mean, if you're getting... 
If you're getting any flowers, then that's what it is, I'm sure. Yeah, but this is a deep, deep uh, fuchsia wine. Yeah, that's pretty. All right. Well, I'm really interested in trying this one because, you know, sometimes when they smell this sweet, they don't taste this sweet. So I'm hoping this is a little bit drier, but this really does smell like a red blend. Red blends all have a similar scent, I've noticed, um, and a lot of them are more so fruit forward. Yeah. Oh, mine's the 2016. I finally found it. It's on the back. (laughs) No, that's so weird. Like at the top, it says, we're gathered here today. And then it says the name of the wine again. Dearly beloved, Ivy Red 2016 Red Wine Central Coast. So there you go. Obviously, that proves that I did not look at the back of my wine before um, opening it. Uh, But hey, 2016. Boom. Well, all right. Well, in honor of you finding that, let's cheers. Cheers. Oh. Mine's good. It's not as sweet as it smells. Um, It's a fantastic blend. This does not disappoint. There's no bite. There's no, I mean, very soft tannins. Um, Yes, guys, this is a fantastic red blend. And I am very wishy-washy with red blends. I think y'all know that. This one, I will get again. I will get again. $8 for this? absolutely freaking lootly Nice. Mine is unlike any red wine I've ever had before. It okay. you... has almost... That's weird. Okay, describe it. Describe it. I'm trying to get into the... Yeah. All right, I'm in the zone. It has almost no acidity. Oh. It's very smooth on the mouth. Very subtle in flavor. I wouldn't describe the fruit flavors as intense. Persistent, yes. Not intense. Okay, so do you remember a couple episodes when we had the Mayomi, or when I had the Mayomi Pinot Noir? Yeah. And I described it as a Pinot Noir that has a lot of qualities of a cab? Yeah. This is almost the opposite. It has the heft and look and stuff of a cab, but the lighter, more muted flavors of a Pinot Noir, but it is definitely not either. Interesting. It, this is very interesting. I can see how this would go well with a lot of like spiced dishes. Oh, things yeah. Things like that. Yeah, it mellows out. Apparently mellows my word of the day. Brittany's mm. word of the day. Dee, 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 dee. Um, mellow. <laughs> but that makes sense that you would want like a more mellow wine if you're having spicy dishes. It's almost one that in your mouth doesn't really have a flavor. I mean, it's there, it's very muted, but then once you swallow it and you get some oxygen in with it, that's when it kind of comes full force after you've already drank it. Very interesting. That is interesting. So you would say it has a pretty long finish? Oh, definitely. I'm still tasting it. Still tasting it. it's a good one. Just like garlic. Taste it for days. garlic does have... uh, (laughs) Okay, fair. (laughs) All right. Um, Well... I am very impressed with this wine. I definitely want to branch out and try other wines from other areas. I definitely want to try one from the Middle East. I never have. Mm-hmm. I have had um, Manischewitz, which I don't actually think is produced in Israel. I might be wrong. It is like a kosher Passover wine. I think it's made with Welch's grapes, though. It's very sweet. It's like alcoholic grape juice. Yeah, yeah. I think I remember you telling me about that it was made from Welch's grapes. Concord grapes. That's the word. Oh, Welch's is the brand, but hey, you know. Yeah. Um, But I don't know if that is 
technically from Israel, or if it is because it's kosher and Jewish, it's like kind of in that section. Not sure. I'm not sure either. But all right, we have our wines. We've talked about our topic. I'm going to tell you about my case. And you don't know which one I'm doing. I don't. You know the case I did because uh, the second Ashley told us about it on the tour, I was like, Brittany, I'm doing this. You can't have it. Yeah, you um, stole that. And you know what? But I came up with a good challenger. Ooh, I'm excited. Okay, well, maybe don't be excited because it is still murder. Well, okay, that's that, That's a fair point. I did The Axeman of New Orleans. Ooh, okay. I don't know the actual case. I do know what American Horror Story Season 3 Coven told me about it, which was that a group of witches killed him, by the way. Don't think that's what happened, but <laughs> it's Nolens, baby. Well, it's the magic city. Well, this case is quite interesting, uh, to say the least. I used a few different sources. One was the Smithsonian, an article titled The Axeman of New Orleans Preyed on Italian Immigrants by Miriam Davis. WBUR, an article called The Axe Murderer Who Loved Jazz by Megan Kelly. And then the website Legends of America and their article titled The Axeman of New Orleans. So to start out this very eerie, creepy tale... So right as you said that, as if on cue, lightning and thunder happened outside my window. So really, it is setting the scene for me. Get ready for this shit. All right. So to set the scene for this very creepy tale, I'm actually just going to jump right in to mm, towards the end of the happenings. Um, On March 14th, 1919, in the New Orleans local paper, the Times-Picayune... Sorry if I butchered that. They featured a really interesting letter from the Axeman. I'm going to read the letter because I really think it, it sets it up. It's a pretty long letter, but just stick with me. It's all worth it. So at the top, Hell, March 13th, 1919. Esteemed mortal of New Orleans, they have never caught me and they never will. They have never seen me, for I am invisible, even as the ether that surrounds your earth. I am not a human being, but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell. I am what you Orleanians and your foolish police call the Axeman. When I see fit, I shall come and claim other victims. I alone know whom they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe besmeared with blood and brains of he whom I have sent below to keep me company. If you wish, you may tell the police to be careful not to rifle me. Of course, I am a reasonable spirit. I take no offense at the way they have conducted their investigations in the past. In fact, they have been so utterly stupid as to not only amuse me, but his satanic majesty, Francis Joseph, etc. But tell them to beware." Let them not try to discover what I am, for it were better that they were never born than to incur the wrath of the Axeman. I don't think there is any need of such a warning, for I feel sure the police will always dodge me, as they have in the past. They are wise and know how to keep away from all harm. Undoubtedly, you Orleanians think of me as a most horrible murderer, which I am, but I could be much worse if I wanted to. If I wished, I could pay a visit to your city every night. 
At will, I could slay thousands of your best citizens, and the worst, for I am in a close relationship with the Angel of Death. Now, to be exact, at 12.15, earthly time, on next Tuesday night, I'm going to pass over New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I'm going to make a little proposition to you people. Here it is. I'm very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well, then so much the better for you people. One thing is certain, and that is that some of your people who do not jazz it out on that specific Tuesday night, if there be any, will get the axe. Well, as I am cold and crave the warmth of my native Tartus, and it is about time I leave your earthly home, I will cease my discourse. Hoping that thou wilt publish this, that it may go well with thee, I have been, am, and will be the worst spirit that ever existed either in fact or realm of fantasy. The Axeman. Did he really say jazz it out? Yeah, I know. That's one of the parts where I'm like, <laughs> really, bro? Um, but let's be real. After seeing this in the front page of your newspaper, who is not going to be playing jazz at night? I mean, I would jazz it out all day. <laughs> but that's creepy as shit, uh, regardless of him jazzing it out. It is creepy as shit, um, but I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Also, was there a point where he said he was going to go back to his TARDIS? Yeah. Like, Doctor Who? I mean, it's not spelled the same way, but it's Tartarus, maybe. Tartarus? I think it's essentially the same idea. Spaceship. Okay, got or, it. Or something. He's like an angel... De- no, he's not an angel, sorry. He's like a demon, alien, spirit, bad guy, basically. Or so he says. He's a dick, is what he is. Okay. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself here. So let's go back. In 1918 to 1919, in New Orleans, there was a serial killer dubbed the Axeman by the local paper. The stories that were shared were often pretty speculative and fantastical, just to, you know, tap into the fears of the supernatural and the occult. So the city itself was in a constant state of fear. Italian immigrants were the chosen victims of the Axeman, and this could be tied to their history in New Orleans. So I'm going to do a little bit of a history lesson here. They were, they being the Italian immigrants, were supposedly taking over the corner grocery business. And by 1920, they owned about half of the corner grocery stores. Which, by the way, when I was doing this research, I couldn't stop thinking about the fact that we did not get the the muffaletta from Central Grocery. And I know. I found that we can order it online. It's $100 for two sandwiches, but it might be worth it. (laughs) Um, I mean... Or, much in the way of the beignets, we find someone from New Orleans who opened up a Mufaletta shop in either Austin or Dallas. I will say, there is a sandwich shop in Seattle in Pioneer Square called Salumi. I think I've mentioned it to you. Absolutely best sandwiches in the world. The line is always like three hours long, but you can order on the phone and just skip the line, by the way. They hand make all of their meats and cheeses and breads and fillings and all the things. And I always got the regular one because it was like handmade salami, mozzarella, and pesto on ciabatta. And yes. Oh my god. But at my job, because that's when I would eat it most, we would have maybe once every two weeks someone would be like, hey, do you want to go to Salumi? And like, we're buying. 
it was one of those where if I went to pick it up, everyone else would buy my stuff. And I was like, yes, I will get my sandwich for free and I will go pick them up. Absolutely. Get out of the office for a second. Get a delicious right. sandwich. I this That's a win-win. It was perfect. But my CFO always ordered a muffaletta there and it was his favorite sandwich. And I'm so mad I never decided to get one. Well, you need to go back and try it because I bet it's phenomenal. It is. And the restaurant's owned by Mario Batali's dad. So the old, I think he's a former Iron Chef. I don't know if he still is. But his dad and like family runs the restaurant and it's amazing. Did I tell you I went to the Beechers in Pike Place Market? Yeah, the cheese place. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, did you have the God. mac and cheese? Of course I did. Uh I mean, I fell in love with Beechers in New York, so it was amazing to go to the OG there in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Um, God, I love food. I do too, and this is making me hungry. So I'm gonna I'm gonna get back into the the horrors of the Axeman. Yes, yes. Okay, so the Italians are taking over the corner grocery business. However, despite all of their success, owning about half of the corner grocery stores by 1920, there were some unpleasant stereotypes that remained. So a lot of these Italian immigrants were from Sicily, and these Sicilians brought with them to America the clannishness and distrust of authorities that led them to settle their disputes the old-fashioned way, the vendetta. Their vendetta system of justice survived in Sicily into the 20th century, and immigrants brought it with them to New Orleans, and both personal and professional vendettas, they were not uncommon happening around Mm -hmm. the city. There were so many shootings and knife fights that occurred along Decatur Street that it was nicknamed Vendetta Alley. So this fear of immigrant immigrant crime um, culminated in 1890 to 1891 with the murder of New Orleans chief of police, David Hennessy. And he was a very popular official and he was met with Shotgun fire as he arrived home on October 15th, 1890. And so it was a really, yeah, it was a really easy connection for the city to make that the mafia was behind the murder. The police arrested a number of Sicilians who were then tried in two different groups. And after an initial set of acquittals, the mob stormed the jail, murdering 11 of the accused. Oh my God. God, like, I guess like, to make sure they don't spill secrets. Or, yeah, like, it was a mob. I don't know if it was the mafia itself, but a mob stormed the jail, and they... Oh, okay. Yeah, um, but they lynched some who'd been acquitted, as well as some who had yet to be tried. So, oh, I so... actually think it was a, a group of civilians that created a mob yeah, to storm the jail. that kind of mob. I guess I'm I'm like th- in the mafia headspace, and you say the mob, and I'm like, yep, the mob. <laughs> no, a mob. Nope, a not mob. that mob. <laughs> I think okay. I did say oh. the, but I meant a. So, given all of this history with the Italian immigrants, it it was not really surprising when New Orleans, New Orleanians, New Orleanians. I don't know people from New Orleans. People from Nola. So it, it wasn't surprising when the New Orleanians were. They suspected that the attacks on Italian grocers from the Axeman could have been connected to some type of vendetta that happened <sighs> in the past or concurrently or something. What if, what if he was like the chief of police's son? Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> All right. So 
Fast forward a bit, and the murders, they start. The Axeman broke into a series of Italian grocers, attacking the grocers and their families, most of the time with their own axes. He left some people wounded, some people dead, and all of his attacks were very vicious. Was he attacking them in their stores or in their houses? I guess it was families or houses. Well, a lot of the grocers lived, like, upstairs from their store. Oh, yeah. So it's the same place. The first victim was a grocer named Joseph Maggio and his wife Catherine on May 23rd, 1918. They slept in their home above the Maggio grocery, and in the middle of the night, the killer broke in. Joseph had his skull fractured with his own axe and his throat cut with a razor. Catherine also had her throat cut, and she asphyxiated on her own blood as she bled out. When law enforcement began to investigate, they found the bloody clothes of the murderer, so he had obviously changed and cleaned up, and he had brought another pair of clothes before he left the scene. Oh my god. Police also ruled out robbery as some type of motivation for the attack because money and valuables that had been left in plain sight, they weren't stolen. They were still there. And it was with his own axe? Yeah, with his his own axe. Axe dude didn't bring one from home? What if he didn't have an axe in the house? I feel like a lot of people had axes. Like, this is just a thing that you had. When you're bored, you go chop down some trees in the swamp. No, I mean, for chopping wood, for building shit, I don't know. They don't have, like, power tools, dude. An axe is, like, a thing, you know? I mean, I guess to be fair, I would expect most people who, like, own property would have a saw. So it's kind of the same thing, but I don't know. I don't know. But just over a month later... Another couple was attacked in the early morning hours of June 27th. Louis Bissumer, who was another grocer, and his mistress, Harriet Lowe, lived in the quarters at the back of the store. So not above, but in the back. Mm -hmm. When no one was there to open the store the next morning, they were then discovered lying in a pool of blood. Bessemer had been struck with an axe above his right temple, and Lowe was hacked over the left ear. Um, both of them were really badly injured, but still alive. How? Because to me, an axe is one of the scariest weapons, because it's, like, the sharpness and cutting of a knife with, like, the heaviness and, like, heft of a sledgehammer or something. Yeah. In one. I know. And they're also, axes aren't thin. So, like, when that cuts you, that's a big hole. I know. You've got, like, an inch wide and, I don't know, six inch long fucking canyon and she was hit above the ear so like her head yeah oh my god yeah people are the fact that people can survive these things is crazy it absolutely blows my mind and then again on august 5th there was a third similar attack this was made on mrs edward schneider and she was eight months pregnant she was 28 years old laying in bed And she woke up to see a dark figure standing over her. And she was bashed in the face with the axe repeatedly. Shortly after midnight, she was discovered by her husband, who was just returning from work. Her scalp had been cut open, and her face is obviously covered in blood. But she survived the attack and gave birth to a healthy baby baby girl two days later. Holy shit. They survived, and he was healthy- Oh my 
God. Yeah. People's people's bodies are crazy. I also want to point out that the time of night, like he's attacking at night. Yeah. But the time of night seems so different because in this case, it was obviously before midnight because that's when her husband got home. Yeah. In the previous one, I guess you said early hours of the morning, but to me that makes me think like three or four. Me too. Me too. So it's not like the killer's someone who gets off of work and that's when he starts murdering. It's, I don't know. No, and it's, um, like you were saying, I don't understand how, I mean, I'm glad that she survived, but I can only imagine how much pain she went through for the rest of her life. Pain and fear. Yeah. But her baby survived, which is phenomenal. I know. She had a miracle baby. She did. And so after this third attack, this is when investigators began to publicly speculate that this third attack was related to the first two, the Bessemer and the Maggio one. And then five days later, another grocer, Joseph Romano, was attacked on August 10th. He was an elder grocer who lived with his two nieces, and they woke up in the middle of the night to the sound of a commotion in their uncle's room. Mm -hmm. They entered Romano's room to find that he'd taken a serious blow to his head, and they saw an assailant fleeing the scene. Romano was severely injured, but he was able to walk out to the ambulance once it arrived, but he did die two days later due to severe head trauma. What a badass. He's hitting the head with an axe, and they're like, Uncle, do you want us to help you? And he's like, nah, I got it, girls. Yeah. I'll walk myself to the ambulance. Don't worry. Lock up. Oh, and then he died, and that's what's so tragic. And this is the other thing. It sounds like he got hit, like, a couple times or whatever, and then the assailant left because they were about to be caught, yet he dies, and the people who lasted the full-on attack or had to, you know, receive this unfortunate full-on attack survived. It's just, the body's so unpredictable. Yeah. Unpredictable is the perfect word. I think that's the word I've been searching for the past, like, a hundred episodes. how many episodes, (laughs) basically. But yeah, it's so unpredictable. Absolutely. And so all of these crime scenes are really similar. They were all ransacked, but nothing was ever stolen. The killer used the owner's hatchets and axes and blades. And the panels of the doors or windows were chiseled away to gain entry. So that's how he was getting in. Huh. And the majority of the victims were Italian. Chiseling away the door or the window frames and that stuff. I feel like that's a very specific skill. And I don't, I mean, I don't know if this back at the time when they're like, oh, we had door makers on every street corner or what. I don't know. But the, I mean, I guess someone could have a chisel and figure it out. But that to me is interesting. Yeah, it is really interesting that that's how he was doing it. But at the same time, like people knew how to build like shit. Like everyone knew how to build stuff. Like that was just the way of life. So yeah. being skilled with a chisel, also a chisel is pretty easy to use. Like you you hold the chisel and you kind of like hammer it in. My thought is more so around how did he do it quietly? That too. Also, I guess you were right when you said everyone had an axe in their home because that's just, how did he know where they were? Is it like, oh, everyone, you keep your axe under the kitchen sink. Is that like a thing? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Axe murders are ones that terrify me i mean we could honestly do an entire episode on axe murders because there's like on the list there's like one 
that's unsolved. There, actually, I think there are quite a few that are like this, where an entire family is mutilated by an axe and left mm-hmm. in the home. Like, it's just, it's, it's so violent. It's so violent. And in the same way that I've said, I don't know, probably 60 episodes ago, how if for some reason I was presented with the choice, I would so much rather get shot than stabbed, because I feel like getting stabbed takes longer and would hurt more. I feel like an axe is like the worst kind of knife. Yeah, because it Ugh. has that hammer-like uh, connection. Yeah, I think it might be the last weapon I would choose to die by. Maybe a medieval flail, you know, the the stick with the chain and the ball with the spikes on it. Maybe oh, I God. would prefer an axe over that, but oh, God. Either one is not ideal. I mean, I don't want to die by any weapon, but uh, an axe, it's just so brutal and so violent. It is. So every single suspect that they arrested was quickly released due to there being no evidence against them. No reason to hold them. Nothing tying them to the crimes. New Orleans detective John D'Antonio, who was an expert on the mafia, he rejected the idea that they were involved, and he said their attack would not have left any survivors, and the Axeman was frequently leaving survivors. Yeah. He agreed with Frank Mooney, who was New Orleans police superintendent, and Mooney was convinced that the attacks were the work of a fiend, someone that was a Jekyll and Hyde personality like Jack the Ripper, and who would suddenly get the impulse to kill, and that would come upon them, and he had to obey it. AKA, this is what we call a serial killer today. Yeah. So all of a sudden, things start to taper off, and these attacks aren't really happening. And months had passed, and the city's finally, like, the, the panic is subsiding. They're calming down. But then the Axeman struck again on March 10th, 1919, in the neighboring town of Gretna, which was across the Mississippi River. On the night of March 9th, he assaulted Charlie... Chorta Megillia, sorry, it's it's a longer last name, but it's like Corta Megillia. Um, and he badly injured Charlie, his wife Rosie, and he killed their two-year-old daughter. Oh, God, because previously he'd just been attacking, like, couples and or parents and not hurting kids if they were in the house. Not that I had heard of, yeah. Rosie woke up to find her husband struggling with a really large man welding an axe. And when her husband fell to the floor, this, this assailant turned on her and she, she held her daughter and she was begging for both of their lives. But the killer didn't obviously care at all. He slammed the axe down on both Rosie and her daughter. And their neighbor heard all of this commotion. And his name was Orlando Giordano. He heard all these screams and he went over to to see that the family had been attacked. Charles laid in a pool of blood on the floor, and Rosie stood in the doorway with a very serious head wound, holding her daughter, who was deceased. So New Orleans police superintendent Mooney, he believed this was the work of the Axeman. Like he said, he didn't think this was mafia-related. He was like, no, this is, this is the Axeman. He crossed the river. But the Gretna authorities, police chief Peter Lesson and Sheriff Louis Marrero, they thought it was Charlie's neighbor, Orlando, and his 17-year-old son, Frank. Why? I mean, 
I know killers do, like, call the police on the people they just killed, like, to throw suspicion off. But that's so dumb, because I feel like in this case, it would have been just as easily believable to pretend you didn't hear anything, and then in the morning be like, oh my god, my neighbors, or whatever. Right. So, as it turns out, Charlie was an Italian grocer. Again, you know, that's what the Axeman always attacks. And so were the Giordanos. Um, therefore, they were competitors. And the Giordano, Orlando, he had recently taken Charlie to court for a dispute. And so this is why the Gretna authorities believed wholeheartedly that the attack was related to a vendetta and to the mafia. This was something that was easier for them to understand than the idea of a serial killer. I guess, but to me, it would just be so obvious that the Axeman got on a bridge, like he has feet and walked, or a ferry, or to me, I'm like, it's so similar. And I guess, though, they could be of the assumption of like, oh, the neighbor wanted us to think it was the Axeman and like kind of copycat killered. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And again, the idea of someone who just wants to kill to kill without much reason doesn't make a lot of sense to them right now. I mean, it still doesn't make a lot of sense. We just know what happens. Yeah, that's true. You know, we've done a lot of studies and research on this. But here in the, you know, it's 1919. They don't get it. They're like, why why would you just kill to kill? Well, because some people are super fucked up. That's why. And there's really not Mm -hmm. more reason than that, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, there is, but, like, that's the underlying, some people have fucked up. Yeah. Well, and, you know, the other reason that, you know, the, the authorities may have been thinking that it was in Vendetta is because suspecting an Italian Vendetta was not unreasonable in this period when disputes among Italian immigrants were, they happened all the time, and the, they resulted in assault and murder all the time. But... There was absolutely no evidence to implicate the Giordanos, so the police essentially um, started interrogating Charlie and his wife, asking who hurt them, and saying things like, it was Frank, wasn't it? It was Frank. Come on, come on. It was Frank. You can tell us. Rosie- And they're like, we have severe head wounds. I don't know. Seriously, Rosie always said she did not know who attacked her. And the moment she was well enough to be released- Marrero immediately arrested Rosie as a material witness and incarcerated her in the Gretna jail. What the fuck? She she is a victim. She saw her husband almost get killed, was herself almost killed. Her child was killed in her arms. And she's like, I don't know, bitch. It was dark. I have a head wound. Also, it's 1919. I'm not sure if we have electric lights around the city or not yet. But sure, you're fucking arresting her? Yeah. They only released her after she signed an affidavit implicating her neighbors in the crime. Oh my god. Fucking the corruption shit that goes on. I mean, went on in the past, still happens today, obviously. But the blatantness of it, like, fuck y'all. I know, it's ridiculous. And like, this ended up being the only quote-unquote evidence in their trial. The trial lasted less than a week, and Orlando and Frank were both convicted of murder. Oh my god. Orlando was 69 years old, and he was sentenced to life in prison, and Frank was sent to hang. 
Jesus. So basically their trial was the police being like, well, we have a signed statement where she said it was them. And Jerry's like, all right, do it. Basically. Cool. Well, nine months later, Rosie walked to the newspaper office of the Times, Pecky Yoon, and she retracted her testimony, stating she never saw her attacker and that she was coerced into IDing the Giordanos. Initially, the prosecution refused to accept this, and they actually threatened to accuse her of perjury for taking back her testimony. But finally, in December 1920, the Giordanos were released. So Frank was not oh, hung. He did survive. They they were let out. Oh, good. That was what was worrying me, because I know back in the day, you know, you're sentenced to death sometimes. I mean, it's a quicker process. It could be something they do, like, all right, we're on the docket for next week. That's when we, you know, that's when we could fit it into the schedule. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, Ugh. thankfully, that did not happen. Good. They both were released. But while all that was going on in Gretna, the Axeman went back over to New Orleans and this is when the new twist in the case happens with the letter in the newspaper. They got this taunting letter again on March 14th, 1919. So this is four days after the Gretna attack. And it was promising another attack if people did not play jazz and dance to jazz all night long. Because of what he said, music flowed from homes across the city. Dance halls were filled to capacity Professional and amateur bands played jazz at parties at hundreds of houses around town. So it was literally just a big night of jazz, like, terrified partying and dancing and just hoping you don't die. Yeah, God, that is so eerie. The juxtaposition of this, like, lively music and lively atmosphere and parties going on, but people are doing them so they don't get murdered. They're literally... You know, listening to this jazz, maybe having a drink, terrified out of their fucking minds. Probably getting pretty drunk. I know I would. If I'm just like, okay, I need to like dance, listen to jazz. Well, I'm going to need to drink. Otherwise, I'm going to be like dancing and balding my fucking eyes out or unable to dance because I'm rolled up in a ball on the floor because I'm scared. Yeah. Oh, my God. Thankfully, no one was killed that night. For several weeks, everything was quiet again. But at this point, everyone's, they still lived in fear. There was, mm -hmm. you know, just because there's a pause didn't mean they were safe because this had happened before. And then on August 10th, 1919, another grocer named Steve Boca was attacked in his bedroom as he slept. Boca awoke during the night to find a dark figure looming over his bed. He suffered a blow from the axe, but survived. And when he regained consciousness, he ran to the home of his neighbor where he lost consciousness and uh, he collapsed. He was then treated for his injuries, but was unable to remember any of the details of the attack. So like the others who had been assailed by the Axeman, nothing was taken from his home. Um, the panel in the back door of the home had been chiseled away and he'd been injured with an axe. On September 2nd, a local a uh, drugstore guy named William Carson escaped the Axeman when he fired several shots at an intruder who had broken into his home. So this is like one of the first people that heard the Axeman coming in. Um, the Axeman actually ended up leaving an axe behind. So I guess he did have one with him at that time. 
and backup axe. The back his backup axe in his back pocket, and he also left the door broken because he had been trying to chisel his way in. The next night, September third, a young girl named Sarah Lumen was attacked with an axe while she slept in her locked and shuttered home. The neighbors came to check on her. She lived by herself, and they discovered her lying unconscious on her bed, suffering from a severe head injury and missing several teeth. She did have a brain concussion, but she recovered, and a bloody axe was discovered on the front lawn of the building where she lived. So once again, New Orleans is obviously in a state of hysteria at this point, but nothing more would be heard from the axe man for nearly two months. And then on October 27th, 1919, the last attack came. It was grocer Mike Pepitone, um, and he was killed. That night, his wife heard this noise, and she got to the door of the bedroom just as a large axe-welding man was fleeing the scene. So she saw him leaving. Mm -hmm. Mike had been struck in the head and was covered in blood, and his murder left behind his wife and six children. Even though Mrs. Pepitone had seen the Axeman leaving, she was unable to describe any characteristics of the killer, and all the same usual clues were there. Nothing was stolen, chiseled, axe, all the things. Well, I mean, again, it's dark. Yeah. It's the middle of the night. I, You can tell, like, oh, there's a tall figure who looks man-shaped, but any more than that, I don't know. I know. You could maybe guess height, but not really. Yeah. To this day, this case is still unsolved. We have no idea who the Axeman is. It's because the witches got him. Okay. Well, I didn't watch that season, okay? So I don't know. I started it, and I saw Kathy Bates rubbing blood all over her face, being, you know, Madame LaLaurie, kind of. And, uh, yeah, I didn't watch that season. It's a good season. So... According to some of the eyewitness accounts of the survivors, they were able to compile a little bit of what they thought to be information on the Axeman. The Axeman was a white working class male in his 30s um, when the attacks began. And with it being really easy for him to break in with uh, the use of like a railroad shoe pin, which was a common burglary tool of the day, the police concluded that he was an experienced burglar. Evidence from police records and newspaper accounts, however, they they showed that he struck everywhere in Louisiana. He killed more people around. So he he left NOLA completely and kept killing. He killed Joseph Spiro and his daughter in Alexandria in December 1920, Giovanni Orlando in Ritter in January 1921, and Frank Scalisi in Lake Charles in April 1921. And the killer's modus operandi was the same. Breaking into the Italian grocery in the middle of the night, attacking the grocer and his family, using their own axe. But then after this one in Lake Charles, he completely disappeared from history. I wonder if there are any similar crimes in Texas. Because just looking at a map of Louisiana in my head, you know, New Orleans to Lake Charles, he's heading west. And Lake Charles is, I think, on the border with Texas. So I wonder if in, like, 1922, there were a couple axe murderers in the Houston area. But because it was different states, different jurisdictions, and this time, like, it was never connected. 
Because Maybe. to me, it's so weird that he, you know, he would take breaks of a couple months. And then he did leave New Orleans, but he was still killing other cities. I can't imagine, you know, he killed in Lake Charles and was like, you know what? I'm good. Bucket list checked off. I mean, sometimes serial killers just stop as quickly as they start. I guess that's true. Or, honestly, maybe it was like a Dennis Rader situation where he literally stops for years and years and years and then starts up again. But but with this still being... So even if he stopped for 30 years, that gets us to the 50s. We're still not as advanced, you know? Like, we still don't have this idea of a serial killer pinned down in the 50s. Yeah. So it could have started again, and there was never a connection made. And maybe there is now, but, you know, in, in my research, you know, the super deep dive that I made, um, I mean, I have a lot of information, but there's obviously a lot more out there. Maybe there are connections to later cases. You never know. Did I just solve it? No, because you don't know who he is. Just because you found more murders really doesn't solve it. It was Jack the Stripper. <laughs> no. Um, so there are a few theories of who the Axeman was and why he did what he did. One of the theories is that he was getting revenge against the Italian-Americans because black jazz musicians weren't getting their due credit. The first jazz recording was in 1917, and it was led by an Italian-American named Nick La Roca. So maybe he, he was pissed because... He was like, no, the black community created jazz and this Italian-American's getting credit for it. Okay. A second theory is that the Axeman was upset about the shutting down of the New Orleans Red Light District, Storyville, in 1917. So the Navy ended up shutting down everything in the neighborhood, gambling dens, brothels, and dance halls and clubs where jazz music was flourishing. So maybe the Axeman was just pissed about that. Okay. Seems very unlikely. But again, you never know what's going to set someone off. True. Or possibly another theory is that the Axeman was defending Jazz's honor. So in the summer of 1918, the Times Picutane, no, Picayune, (laughs) said the wrong word, sorry. Picayune, or maybe I've always been saying the wrong word, but the the newspaper ran an editorial trash trashing jazz saying it was not even music that it was just noise which i definitely disagree with that that's total bullshit by the way i mean first off music is noise you hear it <laughs> thereby it's noise but you also second feel off it. god people have been saying that for the boomers of the 20s so whatever generation that was jazz it's just noise and nowadays they're like what is this deep house and I'm like, it's also noise, but I like it. So back off. It's good noise. Leave me alone. You used to listen to Nickelback. <laughs> oh, God, it's true. Okay. Or quite possibly the Axeman was just like the greatest marketer for jazz of all time. And so that one night, every jazz band in New Orleans was working. They had a gig either at a home or at a dance hall. So maybe the Axeman... You know, was just trying to help out all these local jazz musicians get paid, finally, that year. <laughs> I mean, with all the fucked up shit that, like, record labels did back in the day, I'm honestly not... I wouldn't be that, that surprised. I mean, that would I be mean, horrifying. I mean, I would be. Because that's, that's still a step, but 
damn. So Calling him the greatest <laughs> marketer. I know, that's like, greatest should not be a word ever associated with any type of killer. Yeah. Um, Miriam Davis, so she's the one that, that wrote the Smithsonian article that I used. Well, she also wrote a book, um, or a longer article, I'm not sure, called The Axeman of New Orleans, The True Story. She believes the Axeman did not even write the letter. Oh. She really believes that the Axeman was a working class, uneducated burglar, and whoever wrote that letter was clearly a very well-educated person. Um, I mean, and that, you can just hear the language that's used in that letter, how that's not your everyday average Joe, everyday average Axeman. That's an educated Axeman. Or just someone completely different who's saying is the Axeman and wanting to do this. Um, she thinks a man named John Joseph Davila wrote the letter. He was a musician and jazz composer. And right after the letter was published, he came out with a composition called The Mysterious Axeman's Jazz, Don't Scare Me Papa, was the name of the song. And he made a ton oh, of money off okay. that song. So, so huh. You know, weirdly, I didn't even think about that of like, Who is to say the letter was even actually sent by the Axeman? Right, exactly. There's another popular theory that the Axeman was a man named Joseph Momfrey, who ran a blackmailing gang in New Orleans at the time. However, Momfrey was in prison when most of these attacks happened. So maybe, and most likely, we're just never going to know. We're never going to know who the Axeman was. And that is the case of the Axeman of New Orleans. Definitely a very terrifying, violent, mysterious story. Like It's just super fucked up. It is super, super fucked up. Um, And I, like you, had heard of this, didn't know like all of the details until I really, I knew about the letter. Like, I feel like that's something a lot of people know about, but learning the italian-american um thread that runs through this and how that really could be a huge um reason behind why he did what he did and i didn't realize that the whole like vendetta thing how that was looked at as a potential reason i didn't even know vendetta was an italian word i didn't either but it is it is um and how decatur street was uh vendetta alley you know we walked down it so many times <laughs> didn't know that was like you know of it. the street that like cafe du monde and the french market are on vendetta alley also where the uh the corner deli thing a thing don't i it's on decatur honestly i'm gonna have to google where to find like the best muffaletta in dallas because i've been craving one um so i know story for you guys as to why we didn't make it there we literally made it within two blocks and We'd been walking in the rain. It was progressively getting heavier. And then all of a sudden, it was this torrential downpour. And we had maybe 10 minutes before we needed to leave to the airport. And it wasn't going to be worth being soaking wet on the plane. Yeah. Because it was the kind of rain that is coming down in, like, white sheets that you can see maybe 10 feet in front of you. Like, we were standing on the corner under, uh, like, an awning and could not really see the other side of the street. Yeah. It was bad. So we called someone to drive in that and pick <laughs> us up. <laughs> and we hopped into the lift and 
Um, went to the airport. But yeah, so we literally, we almost made it there. And it's going to take some time for me to get over it. <laughs> just kidding. I just have to go back. And I'm freaking going. We we will grow through this experience. <laughs> no. Okay. So your case was super, super fucked up. I learned a lot. American Horror Story Coven did not do it justice because honestly, my takeaway from Coven, granted they do this thing where they're like, oh, let's talk about real historical people. But like, that's the only real thing about it. Because like Marie Laveau is in Coven. Madame LaLaurie is in Coven. The Axeman is in Coven. But it's like, oh, we opened a 15 page like history of New Orleans book and found these names. So these are characters now. Well, because honestly, my takeaway of the Axeman was, I was like, huh, that's kind of boring. And then you went into it and I was like, holy fucking shit. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's definitely not boring. And yeah, American Horror Story just skimmed the surface and didn't even dive into the craziness of all of the people that they brought up. Or like stories. He's a ghost? Yeah. Well, yeah, because the season takes place in like 2015 or something. Oh. He's a ghost. There's lots of ghosts in the show. Okay. Everyone's a ghost. Are you a ghost? Uh, no. But I wish. I don't. Ghosts can't eat. They also can't like leave the house, which on some days sounds like perfect. <laughs> on other days would just get really boring. I'd want to die at least in a, like a big house. Yeah, I mean, ghosts don't have to work because they don't have to buy anything because they can't leave where they are. They can't eat. They can't ride roller coasters. Yeah. Their lives are dull. They just like... I know. I don't want... This is why they haunt people because they're bored. Oh, 100%. I mean, I don't want to become a ghost in my one-bedroom apartment. It'd be so boring. Literally so boring. I would nap a lot. But yes. So that case was... I mean, you did a great job. Awesome. Uh, but that case is super fucked up. All right. Well, before you say that too many times, let's get into yours. Yeah, well, mine also is too. And it's one that you actually know of, sort of, because it turns out we did not hear the entire story. I believe that. And mine is the murder of Addie Hall. The sources that I used for this were... Historic Mysteries, an article titled The Zack and Addie Murder Slash Suicide by Shelley Barclay. Medium.com, The Gruesome Tale of Zack Bowen and Addie Hall and What It Says About Our Fascination with True Crime by Delani R. Bartlett. Crimemuseum.org, Truly Chilling by Susan Fries. And I am also going to cite the Witches Brew Tour Company and Ashley, who was our tour guide, because she introed us to this case, which is when I, like, gripped Brittany's arm and was like, I'm doing this one. Back off. Essentially. Basically what you did. So on October 17th of 2006, at about 8.30pm, the New Orleans police got a pretty disturbing call from the Omni Royal Orleans Hotel which is the hotel that we were stopped in front of when Ashley told us this story. This call said that there was a man's body on the roof of the parking garage next door. So once the police got there, they saw this severely mangled body, and it was clear that whoever this was, they had died on impact. But police were not sure if they were dealing with a murder, a suicide, or maybe even just an accident. 
So investigators started searching the body for an ID, see who this was, see who they could contact. And in this man's back pocket, they found a note. And part of this note read, This is not accidental. I had to take my own life to pay for the one I took. If you send a patrol to 826 North Rampart, you will find the dismembered corpse of my girlfriend, Addie, in the oven, on the stove, and in the fridge, along with full documentation on the both of us, and a full signed confession from myself, Zach Bowen. Which literally is, being the officer that pulled out that letter and read it, I'm sure they were like, mm-hmm. oh my fuck, oh my, oh, uh, back up. Uh, Helen, Helen, I, I need you to read this. Yeah. Seriously, like, the horror. Oh, I, because you're looking for idea, you're like, oh my god, this poor guy, like, I don't know what happened. Oh, what's this? Okay, let me see. Holy shit. Yeah, like, not only did he kill his girlfriend and then dismember her, but he's cooking her? Yeah. Like, this is... Even if the note's not true, whatever the fuck is going on is fucked up. Yeah, something's going on and it ain't right. So, obviously, police rush to this address, which it's a small apartment that's above the Voodoo Spiritual Temple. And if... If you look at it on Google Maps, it just looks like a little yellow house that's two stories. Their apartment was the second floor. And once they were inside, they saw what can only be described as something out of a horror movie. Despite the warm October weather, the apartment was cold and the AC was set to 60. The walls had been spray painted with haunting messages of regret and pain, such as things like, I'm a failure. And there were also instructions to call Zach's ex-wife and tell her that he loved her. One of the messages on the wall had a big arrow that pointed to the stove and directed them there. And on the stove, in a pot on one of the burners, was a human head. And it was burned beyond recognition. And it belonged to Addie Hall. Why? In another... Why boil the head? Why? I... Why all of this? Literally everything about this is why. Because unfortunately when a killer dies before being discovered, there's so much. Even when you feel like you have all the answers, there's still so many answers you'll never have. Because you lose the ability to ask them questions. Yeah. So on the stove in another pot were her hands and feet. Inside the oven in a large roasting pan were her arms and legs that were also burnt. And investigators noticed that there was seasoning on her limbs. Oh. And on the counter next to the stove were cut up potatoes and carrots. Oh my god, she's a human, not a roast? Yeah. I mean, it looks like he's setting up for dinner. Sick. Inside the refrigerator in a large plastic bag, they found her torso. We might hear thunder in a couple seconds, uh, because, oh my god, that was bright. Um, So, I'm going to back up a little bit and go into their background, because I feel like I've hooked y'all in. There was the thunder. There it was. I even heard that. (laughs) Um, Yeah, no. Also, both of ours started with letters. Oh, they did. Yeah. Weird fucking 
similarities we always have in every episode. It's the most bizarre mm-hmm. things that our cases have in common. I know. Even if you take out like the topic connection that we usually do, I feel like our cases always have something that draws them to each other. Like, we've never done an episode where it's like, oh yeah, the only thing similar was whatever the topic was. Exactly. But oftentimes it's there's another little something ties yeah. ties them together or that they both have. So, according to the people that knew Zach, he was a decent person. There was nothing about him that made people guarded or nervous. He wasn't mean. He wasn't the homecoming king kind of person. He was just this pretty average American guy. This source also said that, like, he wasn't very attractive, nor unattractive. I looked at him, he's pretty attractive. So the person who wrote that has very high standards. Well, and that was one of the things that I'd heard about him, too. That he was a pretty attractive guy. Yeah, and that's something that my other sources mentioned. And I think it's a part of his characters that he's a pretty attractive guy. Yeah, attractive, so, well-liked, you know. Yeah. So he has quite a few friends. He was sociable. And so whatever this was that caused him to murder Addie, he had been hiding it and hiding it well. When Zach was 18 years old, he met a 28-year-old dancer named Lana. And the two of them got married. And according to some sources, Zach then joined the military in order to support her and their two kids that they had. So Zach rose to the rank of sergeant in the U.S. Army over the course of a tour of Kosovo and also a tour of Iraq, which I did not know we were still in Kosovo, so... Where? Or I guess in the early 2000s. Where's Kosovo? Kosovo, it is in Europe, like north of Greece, uh, west of Albania, in the former Yugoslavia area. This, I hope this doesn't make me sound ignorant, but I feel like there are a lot of countries in that region that change a lot. And so it's like mm-hmm. the history I learned is now no longer present, you know? Well, and also there have been changes, I mean, since we were in high school. I know the country that you and I learned of as Macedonia, which is like directly north of Greece, is now North Macedonia. And that was a thing, because Greece has a province called Macedonia, Oh, so now the country is called North Macedonia. And then there's also, I mean, Kosovo, I think, used to be a part of Serbia and has split, I think. So Kosovo's still, like, only recognized by, I don't even think, I don't think it's recognized entirely by the UN yet. Yeah. Like, it, there are so many border changes and stuff happening in that area even to this day absolutely and it's interesting to think and i mean those are countries not states but it's almost like Mm -hmm. if california decided it was going to be north cali and south cali yeah well and it's crazy because someone who was in high school when i was born would have learned about yugoslavia yeah i didn't learn about yugoslavia i learned about Croatia and Bosnia and Herzegovina and Serbia and all the other countries because it, it was not a thing anymore. I also didn't really learn about the USSR. Uh, I, was, I mean, that we kind of did. Yeah, I was going to say that as well. We learned like a little bit about it, but mostly focused on the fact that it didn't exist anymore. Yeah. It's also crazy to just think about the fact that, I guess, almost 30 years ago, suddenly 
20 countries existed where one was because they finally earned their independence. Like, I know. Oh, it's crazy. It is. I mean, the map is continuously shifting. And this is similarly, like we were talking about how borders, like natural borders change. And like the latitude, longitude stays the same. Well, there's also the whole complete borders changing because the countries change or it splits in two or it does this, it does that. Like, it's just, Mm -hmm. you know. And there's even plenty of this in our history, like winning Texas from Mexico, yeah. you know, and like Texas becoming a state and what it used to look like when it was first Texas. And now it's no longer got the weird, like the I know it the had this like weird, like, like pipe pulled in a pole. Yeah. It was, kind of thing. It was like the panhandle went even higher. Like someone's it, like a. it went all the way to Wyoming. Yeah. Which is crazy because ew, Wyoming. Sorry if you're from Wyoming, but. You understand. Honestly. You agree with me. Big sky country. You don't even know. you never been to Wyoming. I mean, Wyoming. it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. I have. Oh. I have been on a bus that went through <laughs> Wyoming, and it was the surface of the moon. Okay, fair. I've never been. Okay. I've never been to Yellowstone, but I have been to the moon, and it is Wyoming. So, some of Zach's time in Iraq, he spent in Abu Ghraib. And at least one of his friends told reporters and his biographer that he changed while he was overseas. He was less happy and he wanted to come home, which I feel like is a normal reaction to being in a war zone, but okay. Yeah. He got his wish to come home when he received a general discharge. And because there were some less than honorable conditions in his departure from the army, I could not really find out what they were. Yeah. You know, he did still get an honorable recommendation from his uh, commanding officer, but he was bitter about it, about being discharged in this way. But he managed to keep his spirits up enough, and when he moved back to the States, he became a bartender in the French Quarter of New Orleans. But shortly after... He and his wife separated, which war fucking changes people. So I can understand how from her perspective, she's like, this is not the man I married. Mm-hmm. Also, you married an 18 year old. So like not judging or anything, but I am so different now than from when I was 18. So uh, same. A hundred percent. Literally a hundred percent different. 18 year old Tyler's sucked. Like, anyone who went to high school with me and is currently listening, I apologize. I was an asshole. You really were. Like, you were an extremely bitter child. I also grew up gay in the South, so I feel like that's a reason. No, but I get it. But not an excuse. I was still an asshole. Yeah, I totally get it. Because it's true. But you were. Yeah. But hey, I mean, I'm blah, blah, tripping over my words because I also fucking sucked. Sometimes I still do. Yeah. Because... You were also an asshole in high school. Yeah. Um, Honestly, we all have our asshole moments. But sometimes, if your asshole is overpowering everything else, then maybe, like, take a second look and stop being an asshole. Also, if your asshole is overpowering everything else, (laughs) go to the doctor. (laughs) Jesus. (laughs) I mean, something's wrong. (laughs) Um, yes. But, yeah, I mean, honestly, everyone sucks in high school. It's true. Kids are so mean. Kids are mean, and as an adult now, 
kids are fucking scary because (laughs) they're adult enough to recognize things that make people uncomfortable or things people hate, but they don't have enough maturity or social filters to not say those things. So they're able to insult you in ways that like hit you to your core and not feel bad about it. 13 year olds are the scariest fucking people walking on this earth. 13 year old girls. They're so mean. Like literally, I feel like a 13 year old girl could make me cry. To this day. I would cross the street <laughs> rather than walk by a group of teenagers. Fair. I mean, I would like to do that also for multiple reasons, but um, also they're mean. They're mean and they're scary. <laughs> Unless they're the type of person who in high school or at 13 was like, the horse girl. She's nice. She's always going to be nice. She's a fucking gem and you be nice to her. Be nice to her. Don't ever be mean to people. Seriously, though, why be mean to people? I mean, yeah, don't be mean to people in general. But um, speaking of being mean to people, let's talk about murder. Pretty mean. Yeah. So Zach is now a single man. His wife left him. Um, She, I think, got full custody of the kids. And eventually he set his sights on another bartender. And her name was Addie Hall. At first, they fucking hated each other. He thought she was annoying. She thought he was an asshole. They did not get along. But, of course, how things always wind up working out, they actually wound up really liking each other once they started to get to know each other. Always happens this way. This is so typical. Yeah. Well, and they shared a lot in common. First off, they liked to drink a lot. And they were both bartenders, and they both worked in similar areas in the French Quarter. Zach was tall and good-looking and was known to be very charming. And Addie was very free-spirited and artistic. She would write poetry, and she taught dance classes. And really, the thing that they fell in love, the, the catalyst to their relationship, I guess, was Hurricane Katrina. And... Uh, I know I kind of went into quite a bit of detail on Hurricane Katrina during the episode where I talked about the hospital in New Orleans where the doctors were euthanizing patients. If you haven't listened to that episode, it's a great one. Listen to it after this. But I really think it's something that most people don't understand. Just the totality of devastation that Hurricane Katrina caused on New Orleans. Yeah. I mean, I cannot think of another city going through such destruction, such devastation in the U.S., like a a major city in the U.S. since, like, the San Francisco earthquake in 1906. Or the Chicago Fire. That was 18-something, wasn't it? The Chicago Fire was not even on this scale. Oh, really? Yeah, the Chicago Fire was a big deal, but the amount that it affected the city and changed its course forever... Not the same. If you think about it from a historical lens, Hurricane Katrina is equal to the burning of Rome when Pliny or whoever the fuck was like playing his lyre. Like that that level of devastation and historical importance will be placed on Katrina. I mentioned it, uh, I went to New Orleans back in January of this year, um, and I mentioned it in one of our episodes uh after that, that there are still areas to this day where it's been almost 15 years that have not recovered and are very obviously not going to be recovering soon. Yeah. 
from Hurricane Katrina. And when you think about 80% of the city flooded, there was a small part of the French Quarter, a small part of Bywater, and a little bit of the Garden District that didn't. But like on our trip, most of the places we were were underwater. Yeah. So 80% of the city was underwater. And that, to me, is so hard to wrap your mind around. It is. 80%. So Katrina was and will be one of the most devastating and important things to ever happen to the city of New Orleans. Agreed. Also, it's not like New Orleans has not been hit by hurricanes before. Yeah, no. With the area they're in, like, it's unfortunately a part of their landscape. Like, it happens. It's it's mm -hmm. like, you know, San Francisco and earthquakes, or a lot of cities in California and earthquakes. It just happens. Oklahoma and tornadoes. Like, obviously, we know that. Oh, exactly. And... New Orleans and the greater Louisiana, Mississippi, like that chunk of the Gulf area, has been hit by bad hurricanes before. In 69, Camille came through as one of the most powerful hurricanes to make landfall in the U.S. Made landfall, I think, in Mississippi as a Category 5, only like 20 miles to the east of where Katrina made landfall stronger winds but did not have the effect on new orleans and then i think in the 50s hurricane betsy hit new orleans and did like flood the lower ninth ward and cause a lot of damage and death i think a few hundred people died in hurricane betsy but that was also before the army corps of engineers had like really built up these levees and and it none of it compares to the devastation wrought by katrina so I know I kind of prefaced that with like, oh, I went into it in super detail earlier, so I'm not going to. And then I definitely did. But I think it's really important to understand how much was affected and how much Hurricane Katrina in the story of New Orleans is a main character and always will be. Well said. But for Zach and Addie, like I said, it was almost the catalyst for their relationship because Addie was like, yo, Zach, you can stay with me at my place during the storm. And weirdly enough, the two of them kind of seemed in their element during the storm and in the weeks after. They were without electricity. They were trading drinks for food and making drinks for people who were walking by because they were bartenders and they were party people. And they, um, I, I think Ashley described it as they were like partied through the storm. And they kind of kept the heart and the energy alive in the French Quarter. Yep. Addie became known for flashing the police. And again, the two of them would serve drinks to passerby. They really, they kept the revelry. That's the word I want to use. They kept the revelry alive. They absolutely did. Which is, God, I'm, I fucking, that's, that's huge. It is. And their tale of love and their way of surviving the storm and keeping everything alive it attracted a lot of media attention and they were featured in the new york times a lot of people interviewed them being like yo the city's devastated how are y'all keeping spirits up they're like we're doing what we can for the city because everyone's seeing trauma and shit every day and if we can give them a drink and give them like a five minute reprieve from that that's fucking important which it is. I mean, I won't I won't say it's not. Sometimes you have to yeah. 
I mean, honestly, like I was saying in the 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 Axeman, the night everyone was told to have jazz mu- music playing, how I would yeah. drink so I don't have to face the horrors of the reality that's around me. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what a lot of the people who went to Zaccanati were. That that was their oh, mental yeah. state. They were like, you know what? This is like a lot. It's a little bit much. Can you please give me a shot of vodka? Thank you. Yeah. Well, and also, I know that, you know, at, at first, and when I first heard it, you know, it, it seems callous. Like, God, are they stupid? Are they not aware of what's going on? Do they not care about the people going through what they're going through all around them? They care. But they do, and that's why they're doing this. I mean, that's that's why they're trying to keep the heart of New Orleans alive. Totally. So they partied through the storm and through the aftermath, but... The party did have to end as the city started to recover and things started to return to quote unquote real life. Friends said that that put a lot of strain on the both of them. So according to friends, Addie had been molested when she was a child and like many victims of abuse, she had a string of abusive relationships as an adult and some people, some friends close to her said that she was also bipolar and she suffered from PTSD from her assault as a child. She was also known to be a heavy drinker and could get angry. Zach also had issues. Again, he served in the military in Kosovo and Iraq. And one experience in particular that friends said really messed him up was when a girl that he'd befriended in Iraq was killed along with her entire family, when uh, their shop was bombed. So, like a lot of people that returned from the wars, he came home very depressed and very much suffering from PTSD. Right. So at some point, the two of them, who are very troubled, very much heavy drinkers, they also started doing cocaine on the regular. Their relationship deteriorated to the point where they were just always arguing, And Zach's friends said that he would just always complain about her. So as the city is recovering from Hurricane Katrina, their relationship is just disintegrating. By the end of September of 2006, the two of them had been evicted from an apartment they shared in the French Quarter, and they moved to 826 North Rampart Street, which I think is also in the French Quarter, but like on the edge. Um, And this was the apartment above the New Orleans Voodoo Spiritual Temple. Mm -hmm. At first, the landlord said that things appeared normal between them. But by October 5th, so just a month after living there, Addie visited the landlord and wanted to have Zach thrown out. She discovered that he had been cheating on her. And she was like, you know what? I'm fucking done. I'm ending the relationship. The landlord talked to her about it, and he suggested that they just try to work things out and communicate, and once they've made their decision together, to come to him with it. Come on, dude. And when the landlord... Come on, landlord. I know. I know. Like, I I get he's trying to be like, I don't know, their freaking couples counselor, but like, dude. Well, and I also... Granted, I have no idea, but if they're above the New Orleans voodoo temple i imagine whoever owns it is probably like a part of the spiritual temple and is probably kind of trying to take this like 
I mean, the, the advice you'd expect from, like, a religious leader, a religious person of, like, you know, communicate, work together, you know, you have this beautiful thing, really look into if that's what y'all want to do. And when the landlord didn't hear from them again, granted, he also could have just been like, no, I'm a landlord. I'm not affiliated with any of y'all in the place. I want my check from the two of y'all. Right. I don't know. Right. Um, I'm I'm hoping it's the other story I spun earlier, but... Same. When he didn't hear from them again, he assumed that they had made up. But that was the last time that anyone would see Addie alive. Was her going to her landlord saying, I want Zach off the lease. I want him out. That was the last time anyone ever saw her. And that was, again, October 5th. So on the evening of October 16th of 2006, you know, 11 days later, Mm -hmm. Zach had been out drinking with a friend, you know, to everyone around him, he looked like he was in a good mood. He was talking about a much-needed vacation. And his friend even commented to him and said, like, you know, you seem like you're in paradise. The next night, October 17th, it turned out to be anything but paradise. About 8.30 p.m. on October 17th, that was when a guest at the Omni Royal Orleans Hotel, who was sitting on an upper-level lounge... So there's in the hotel, like having some drinks, doing their thing. They look out the window and they notice the body of a man on the parking deck next door. Oh my God. I didn't even think about the person who saw the body. I honestly thought maybe someone on the roof saw him jump and that's how it was discovered. But no, no, no. Someone just happened to turn and be like, oh my God. I can't even imagine seeing that. Yeah. I cannot yeah. even imagine. So Zach had jumped to his death from a rooftop terrace with his suicide note tucked in his pocket. He had gone up there. He had been having some drinks. It's a rooftop bar. It's, you know, French Quarter. A lot of lightning happening. So again, sorry if you'll hear background noise. But rooftop bar. It's the French Quarter. It's New Orleans. He's up there having drinks, having a good time. And he leaped. So when police found him, his badly mangled body was also covered in cigarette burns all over. And surveillance camera footage of the night, like from the rooftop bar, showed that he'd been walking to the ledge and walking around, kind of pacing several times before following through with it and making the jump. So he he was thinking about it. Yeah. After murdering Addie, Zach spent some time in their apartment, and he wrote the messages on the wall in spray paint. He also wrote the five-page note that was found with his body, and he wrote an even longer confession in Addie's journal. In this eight-page confession letter that he wrote in her journal, he described in graphic detail what happened. I killed her at 1 a.m., Thursday, October 5th. I very calmly strangled her. It was very quick. After he killed her, he sexually violated her several times before passing out next to her. The next morning, he got up and he went to work. When he came home from work, he moved her body to the bathtub, where he dismembered her using a hacksaw and a knife. And afterwards, he cleaned the bathroom. It took Zach four days to decide what to do with Addie's body. And during that time, he just went about life as usual. 
friends who met him during the two weeks between the murder and his suicide said that he seemed like he was in good spirits and again he talked about going on his much needed vacation and in his confession letter he wrote that he wanted to enjoy his last days on earth to the fullest he wanted to indulge in good food good drugs good strippers which honestly i'm like fuck you dude you literally murdered your girlfriend and then, you know, you're like, I'm guilty, I need to kill myself after this, whatever. But before I do, let's go out with a bang. Fuck you. You're a murderer. Seriously. Like, you don't need to go out with a bang. You did something horrible. I know. I know. It's, I'm like, you didn't give her the option to go out, you know, enjoying herself. No, you fucking murdered her. But you think you get, you deserve the opportunity to, like, you know, have a final conclusion to yours you didn't give that to her you don't deserve it exactly so it took him a while to decide but he decided to cook her body but he only wanted to do this allegedly in order to make them easier to dispose of how because i'm imagining it's something along the lines of if someone threw out a bunch of what is clearly food that's not suspicious if someone throws out a human body, that's suspicious. So maybe in that way, in his mind, he's like, oh, it'll just look like a roast or something. But I'm like, you do realize that, like, a human skull looks like a human skull. Yeah, and like, uh, that's toes and fingers and the bones associated with each look like that. Like, it looks like yeah. feet and hands. So apparently... In his autopsy, there was no evidence he had eaten any of her. There's that, at least. So that that's why I'm like, mm, allegedly, you know, it's just to make it easier to dispose of. But who knows? There, there was no human remains found in his system. But, you know, again, the cigarette burns that were all over mm-hmm. him. What are those? In his confession letter, he wrote that he burned himself once for every year that he had been a failure. So in his confession letter, he expressed this great deal of regret, which I'm like, yeah, good for me. You still murdered like her. You, I mean, you. I hope you regret it. I would rather. Yeah, maybe. I would rather a killer like express regret, like, "Yep, I fucked up," instead of just being like, "Yeah, I'm not sorry for what I did." No, I agree. I would rather someone be remorseful, show regret, but also I'm like, I don't give a shit. You still did it. Seriously. So, but he wrote. I scared myself not only by the action of calmly strangling the woman I've loved for one and a half years, but by my entire lack of remorse. I've known forever how horrible a person I am. Ask anyone. Which, again, all I'll say is the world doesn't fucking revolve around you. It's true. But there are a lot of theories into why he did this. And, you know, like we mentioned at the very beginning... The answers are never going to really be known. My opinion is the two of them had PTSD. They had issues with alcohol and drugs. And they were in a very volatile relationship. And I think all of that culminated in him snapping and murdering her. I think they probably had a big fight where she said, I want you to move out. And he strangled her. Again, that's just my theory. Because they're both gone. And they're the ones who hold the answers, so we can never be sure what actually happened. There are multiple theories that come around. 
The one that pisses me off the most is there's this theory that the energies from the voodoo spiritual temple they lived above seeped into the apartment and caused him to go mad and murder. That's bullshit. As much as it is commercialized and portrayed as this, like, black magic, evil, whatever, voodoo is a religion. It's a very spiritual thing. It involves... I I am not an expert on the practice or the religion at all, but it involves energies and giving, and it's not this, like, sacrificial and black magic and voodoo doll putting pins in people and all the shit that you see from American Horror Story or from literally anything that portrays voodoo. It's not what it is. No, it's really It's a religion that people to this day still follow. Voodoo comes from West African religions and is not this commercial appropriated thing. That's one thing that I think is really important to understand is it's literally people's spiritual practice and religion. So again, the theory that like, oh, the voodoo energy seeped in. I'm like, okay, well, the energy would have seeped in and he would have felt very at peace spiritually and religiously. So don't think that's a theory either way. Don't think that's why he did what he did. Yeah. Other theories um, abound. But again, from everything I researched and read, I think he was someone who suffered mental illness. Yeah. He and Addie were in a fucked up relationship and it was bad. They suffered alcohol and drug addiction. He wasn't getting the help he needed from his PTSD, from all the shit he'd been through. She wasn't getting the help she needed either. And I think one day he just fucking murdered her. Yep. And to me, it's really hard. They were so full of life. I mean, literally, they were the life of New Orleans during Hurricane Katrina. And now she's gone. She was just murdered because her boyfriend got pissed. And it's fucked up. It is. Um, And with that statement, I think it's time to jump into postmortem. I agree. So I think that while my case was super fucked up, they both were. And mine, I will say, did have the more modern lens. But again, I also feel like your case could have happened today. The shit that went down in my case could have happened in 1919 or 2019. I mean, it's... That's also... Also, you just made me realize it's like the 100-year anniversary of the Axeman murders. Uh, literally, like, the 100-year anniversary of the last kill was at the end of October. So, yeah. That's horrifying. It is. Um, But, you know, you're right. My Your case could have happened... At any time. And I think that's one of the creepy things about it. I mean, also yours murdered a lot of people. It was so violent. Mine, I think one of the hard things about mine is Addie, to me, feels like someone that would be the bartender I go to. Right. Like someone I would know. Right. Well. Uh, but I think your case definitely was more intense. And just fucking murdering people with axes that he stole from their home. And also over the course of years. I know. I 100% agree with your assessment. Like, the Axeman, he's terrifying. And that letter, like, I'm sorry, written by him or not, it's still associated with the case. And it's so creepy. And Mm -hmm. the violence of an axe, all the things. Yeah, Axeman's more intense. 
The case of the murder of Addie is, it pulls at my heartstrings a lot, um, and it's really messed up, but I'm going to go with, like, the victim count is to make mine a lot more intense, honestly. I mean, fair. For me, Addie, one of the most tragic things, I mean, it's murder. It's tragic at its core. It's a person's life ended. It's a tragedy. Too early without them making any choice. Yep. Like, they had no say in it kind of thing. But everything I read is that she was described as so lively, so full of life. And while I do think that literally everyone who dies is always described as, they were so full of life. They were, they lit up a room with their smile when they walked Mm -hmm. in. All that. From what I read about Addie, she she literally was so full of life. She's, She's fucking serving drinks. She's flashing cops. She's living life and loving it. Yeah. And so, for that, I'm like, yes, she really was so full of life and someone who I think that describes so well. I agree. But, yes, I think your case was the more intense, and so, for our next episode, I will be choosing our topic. Alright, well, thank you guys so much for listening. Let us know what you thought. Please go in to Apple Podcast and rate and review us. Leave us those five stars, add a comment. We love hearing from you and we appreciate so much just your reviews. They they really help us get noticed. We fucking love y'all. And make sure to like and follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So whatever social profile you have, you know, get in, get on our page, do whatever you do with it. If there's other social media that we have no idea exists, if you want us on Foursquare or MySpace or Friendster, we're not doing we're not any of those. Sorry, we're, also, we're not. We're no, no TikTok either. So don't ask. <laughs> yeah, we I, again still don't really know what the hell. <laughs> I, don't, I don't get is, it. I don't but, get it. Uh, but we're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We also have our website. Check it all out. Like and follow us. Yes. And seriously, guys, go visit New Orleans if you haven't. It's such yes. an amazing city full of history. I honestly liked it a lot more than I thought I would. I knew I'd have a good time, but I am itching to go back. And that's that's not something I feel about everywhere I go. So seriously, yeah. check it out. Absolutely. I will say... Don't um don't be too marred by your first impression because the airport is trash and does feel like a high school. Oh my god. Just saying. It does feel like a high school. That's the feeling. Yes. You're walking down the halls and you're like this. I could see if they turned all of these gates, they just put some walls up and turned them into classrooms. It's a fucking high school. It is. Yeah, the airport's bad. Don't even. And if you want to stay somewhere amazing, stay in the Bywater because you're actually in the neighborhoods and you get more of that, like, actual New Orleans local feel. Yes. And also, if you're able to, um, if you're within distance, I I would prefer the drive. When I went in January, we drove. Uh, This time we flew. And the drive, you get to drive through the swamps and the forest, and it's... Unlike any landscape I've ever been in. It's nothing like the Everglades Swamp. It's nothing like any other forest I've ever seen. Try it out. I want to do that. I want to do that sometime. Do it. Uh, But again, thank you all so, so much for tuning in. But this is Blood and Wine, signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys.
Bye.